Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Last year, Pew Research reported that only 29% of Americans now are willing to say they have, quote, a great deal of confidence in medical scientists to act in the best interests of the public. That represents an 11% decline since 2020. What's really concerning is that according to an analysis by the University of California, behavioral economists, it is the, le- is least, re- it is the least reliable scientific studies that are most likely to be cited by other scientists. So apparently it's the most, it's the most um, challenging studies, the least supported studies, that are the most often cited by other scientific workers. After a review of 20,000 published papers, these researchers suggested in an article for the journal Science that doubtful findings are cited more often because they're, quote, interesting. Part of the problem is that the scientific enterprise is plagued by what has been called a, quote, a replication crisis. In essence, findings are too often published without anyone confirming the results with other experiments. One journal reported that more than 70% of researchers have tried and failed to reproduce another scientist's experiments, and more than half have failed to reproduce their own experiments. Just to give you the idea of the wave of this thing, in 2002, there were only 119 scientific papers that were recalled or retracted. In 2022, that number rose from 119 to 5,500. And again, the most challenging thing is that the scientific papers most often cited are those that often have the least actual amount of backing where the experiments have never been replicated, sometimes by the scientist himself, sometimes by peers. It's been talked about why that is. Sometimes there's material incentives to fudge research. Pumping out papers can yield jobs, grants, speaking engagements, and seats on corporate advisory board. This pushes researchers to chase unique and interesting findings, sometimes at the expense of truth. And so what we're finding is that rather than science being settled, and science speaks to many areas, not just natural sciences, but sociology, psychology, family science, all of that, far from science being settled, often what's being published has never been truly researched well, thoroughly digested, uh, put up against other observations from other scientists. The challenge is, we know that interesting and new sells. If something is interesting, if you've got another perspective, if you uncover something and it's new, it sells, it's profitable. And so that's why there's this tremendous increase in the amount 
of scientific research out there that's actually somewhat unfounded. We're in a series called CORE. And in this series, we're diving back into this little book called Ephesians. It's a letter, actually, to the people of Ephesus, written by the Apostle Paul over 2,000 years ago. And it's anything but new. It's anything but no and nobody's ever heard this before. We're actually in a series looking at the core aspects of what we believe as followers of Jesus. And it's nothing really new. It's nothing overly exciting in terms of being new. Instead, it's actually things that we believe for 2,000 years. But we also believe that with the work of God's Spirit in our lives, He can give us fresh perspectives on understanding the actual beauty and depth of His truth, even though it may not be new, never heard of before. The work of God's Spirit can cause it to be fresh in our lives. We looked at the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not new. It's not particularly interesting in terms of recent headlines. But there's a depth, a groundedness, a rootedness that God's Spirit can bring as we dive into the essence of what the Trinity is all about. This morning, we're going to talk, to, talk about a word that shows up a couple of times in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And depending on what kind of background you grew up in, maybe a faith background, a church background, maybe nothing at all. But if you did grow up in a church background, depending on what kind of church, you might have heard this little word often. And it's the word saved. Sometimes it's almost code language that the inner circle understands, but that seems far and, and distant to those who may not have heard it before. But it's not a new term. It's, it's old. It's been around thousands of years. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, Paul uses it a couple of times. And so we're going to not invent new language, but actually dive into some of the depths and contours of that language. Well, Abby comes. She's going to read this in just a second. One thing that's kind of cool is, is Scripture uses lots of rich and diverse language for what it looks like for us to be united to God in faith, for what it looks like for our relationship to be transformed with Him, to be changed, that we're sons and His daughters. It can look like being made alive. Sometimes the Bible uses this idea of receiving sight. Sometimes it talks about being healed. Other times it says being born again, being purchased, being redeemed. There's a richness of language for what it looks like for us to be followers of Christ, united to him in faith. But saved is one of those words. And so listen along as Abby reads Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. And you're going to hear that word a couple of times. So pay attention, lean in, and listen to these very old verses that can still be fresh and applicable and meaningful to our lives. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms of Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, 
not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thank you, Abby. Again, the word that the Apostle Paul uses in that particular set of verses is the word saved. You might have been around people who say, that person got saved, or they say in reference to themselves, I got saved, or this person needs to be saved. What does that mean? Maybe that feels like distant, foreign language to you. Maybe you actually have heard that language so often, you yourself have become somewhat immune to what it actually means. It's just is code language for something that you probably may not even be able to put real words behind. Once again, I want to point to the incredible beauty and depth of Scripture's language that it uses for that kind of idea of us being one with Christ, being healed, receiving sight, uh, being found, being born again. But we're going to dive back a little bit of review for, from last week, and we're going to look at Four things related to the word saved. The why, the what, the how, and the when. The why, the what, the how, and first the why. Why does Paul say that we need to be saved? We'll just do a little bit of review from last week. We said in the first couple of verses last week that there were three different times Paul mentions our state and condition. Here's what he says. Verse 1 of Ephesians 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Verse 5, even when you were dead in transgressions. Verse 3, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We looked at the idea of sin last week. Again, not a new term, not a new idea, but trying with God's help and the power of the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? What does that mean? How can that be fresh and applicable and connect to our lives? We said last week a couple of things, that sin is both our state and our stuff. Paul says we were dead in transgression. Deadness is a state of being. In other words, we're disconnected from God. We're separated from him. We're unresponsive to God's love, his person, his being, his goodness. We're unresponsive to it. But it's not just our state. It's also our stuff. It's the stuff that we do. He says we're dead in transgressions. We're dead in sins. Sins and transgressions are things that we do. He says we're also broken, but we are also breakers. It's another way to look at sin. We're broken and we're breakers. We've been broken by sin. We're separated from God. That's positionally true, relationally true of who we are. But it doesn't stop there. We are broken, and we also break or we violate God's righteousness. We violate his love. We're participants. We're not just victims. We're actually participants. Now, one thing that I don't think we mentioned last week, but there's another category that we sometimes talk about. Sin is a dominion that we belong to, but it's also deeds that we do. It's a dominion. It's an authority. It's a power. It's a rule. We looked last week about the ruler of the air. So the dominion of the evil forces, we're under that influence. But it's not just a dominion, it's also stuff that we do. There's real live action and real live deeds that we do to separate us from God. So there's sin, there's separation that leads to death. That's the why we need to be saved. Why? 
because we're in this state. We're broken by sin. We're under the dominion of the forces of darkness. But we also do real stuff. We're also breakers of God's righteousness. Our deeds don't measure up to God's standard of righteousness. That's the why of why we need to be saved. So what's the what? What does saved really mean? What freight does that carry with it? Well, here's what he goes on in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. But because of his great love for us, God... Now, let me just kind of like take a little pause there. Uh, this is the most helpful thing that our English translations can do. But when this was originally written in Greek, the way that the Greek language works is it kind of orders the words by way of what should be the focus. And so the very beginning of this thought in the Greek starts with the word, but God. We have a whole phrase, but because of his great love for us, then we get to the word God. In the original Greek language, it's just like, but God. In other words, God is the focal point. We are dead. We are lost, to use another metaphor. We're in our transgressions and sin, but God. And it just starts right out of the chute that the only way we can have any rescue whatsoever is because of what God did. Not because of what we did, not because of our efforts, but it's what God did. And so salvation has everything to do, not with what we do, but what God does. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead and transgressions. Then I want to ask you to read the last word along with me here in a bit. It is by grace you have been, let's say it together, by grace you have been saved. There's the word. Say that word with me once again in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved, yeah, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The idea of saved is to keep safe and sound, to rescue from danger or destruction, to save from injury or peril, to save someone from suffering or perishing, to make well, heal, restore to health, one that is suffering from a disease. Other places in the New Testament, this exact same word saved here is actually translated healing. Now, Every year down the shore, and sometimes it seems more frequently these days, you hear about lifeguards saving someone who's been pulled out in a riptide. Someone's floundering. They're being pulled out from the shore, maybe hundreds of yards out. They need to be saved. They need to be rescued. You turn on your TV during hurricane season, there's floods, and the water level is coming up in houses, and there's rescuers going to house by boat, and they're saving, they're rescuing people. It's what it means to be saved. Firefighters go into a house, into a house that's on fire in order to save someone. That's what it means. It's to rescue. And so God rescues us. He delivers us. He saves us from being separated from him. He saves us from being dead in transgressions. He saves us from being locked in to being unresponsive to his love. He makes us responsive. He saves us. He rescues us. He awakens us to his love, his beauty, his goodness, his grace. He saves us. 
Maybe just a couple of sentences I put together about what it means to be saved. We are severed from the wonder of God's character and beauty. We need to be saved or rescued from our depravity and being dead in sin. We are severed from unbroken relational communion with God. We need to be saved or rescued from being lost, destitute, and love-starved creatures. We're severed from the depths of experiencing peace of soul and harmony with God. We need to be saved or rescued from being restless, troubled, unsettled, and agitated. We're severed from delighting in the grandness of God's goodness. We need to be rescued and saved from being boorish, churlish, and coarse when it comes to our perspective of who God is. We're severed from the lavishness of fullness of life. We need to be rescued or saved from people, from being people who deteriorate, weaken, and wither. We're severed from the richness of relational enjoyment with God and with others. We need to be saved or rescued from being paupers, bankrupt, and emotionally destitute. We're severed from the completeness of physical vitality and vigor. We need to be rescued or saved from being diseased, afflicted, ailing, and infected. We're severed from the ultimate well-being of life intended by God. We need to be saved or rescued from, our living, from living in languish or in deprivation. We're severed from the full delight and devotion of worshiping, obeying, and serving God. We need to be saved or rescued from being perverse, sullen, and surly in our demeanor toward God. We are severed from the plenty, abundance, and generosity of God's provision. We need to be saved and rescued from being people who scrounge, scavenge, ransack, and plunder to acquire satisfaction. We were made for eternal life with God. We need to be saved and rescued from eternal destruction and separation from God. You know, the first question that God asks in all of Scripture is in Genesis chapter 3, and he says, where are you? He's coming to save. He's coming to rescue. Humanity has violated God's glorious design of their lives, but God comes seeking them out. His design, his, his motivation is to save them, to rescue them. It's what it means to be saved, to be rescued from our state of being spiritually dead, to be rescued from our brokenness, to be rescued from the dominion of darkness, to be forgiven of our stuff, to be forgiven of the way that we've broken and violated God's righteousness, to be forgiven of our deeds. That's the what of saved. What's the how? How does that work? How does it operate? Again, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. So it's by grace that we have been saved. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Uh, sometimes I'm not overly big on acronyms uh, because they can be sometimes overly simplistic. And sometimes when you make things overly simplistic, they kind of like 
don't work anymore. But there are a couple of acronyms that are really helpful to me. Uh, just one off the cuff is, is PRAY is an acronym that I use all the time. Uh, PRAY, uh, P, praise, R, repent, A, ask, and Y, yield. Uh, often when I go to bed, that acronym is in my head. When I wake up in the morning, that acronym is in my head. When you drive in your car, the acronym can go through your head. Pray. Praise God for who he is. Thank him for what he's done. Praise him. Repent. Are there areas of your life that you need to bring? Say, God, I failed you in this area. Are there things that you want to ask God to do? And then lastly, just simply yield to his spirit. Yield yourself to him. Surrender yourself to him. So that acronym is very helpful to me. I use it all the time, probably multiple times a day that comes through my head. But another one that's helpful is, is the acronym for grace. The acronym for grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. That's the how of why we're saved. We're not saved by our own efforts. Instead, we are saved by grace, by what God accomplished in the person of Jesus. And we're saved through our faith in God's action. We're not saved through our faith in our action. We're saved in our faith by, through our faith in God's action. God's action that he took in the person of Christ who came to this earth, was crucified on a cross, buried, raised to life, and through his sinless life, his death, burial, and resurrection, we have his record applied to us, and our record gets applied to him. It works is simply this. The way that works is, so in, in your hand, what you have is you're dead in transgressions and sin. You're dead in your own deeds, you're dead in breaking God's righteousness. And so through faith, you come to God, and through Christ, all of your junk is placed in the person of Christ on the cross. Through his death on the cross, he takes your violation of his righteousness and his love on himself. He takes your deadness on him. When he dies on the cross... So you give all of your junk to him. You get something else out of my pocket, a little glass case. And in the meantime, he's lived a perfectly sinless life. He's totally faultless before God. He's lived every second of his life in harmony and in obedience to the Father in heaven. He's lived in perfect love, perfect kindness to others. He gives you his perfect record. Get that? So you give him your junk, your breaking, your deeds, your violence. You give that to him, and he gives his righteousness, his goodness, his grace. He gives that to you. That's God's riches at the expense of Christ. You get Christ's stuff. You get his record. You are in him. Now, the way this works, and I mentioned this periodically before, it's Thanksgiving, and, you know, I've she mentioned here a couple times, that, like I have an obsession with getting my free turkey at ShopRite. Um, I don't know why, I just, I just do. I have to do it. Um, the only problem is, like, I don't really spend that much money on groceries. And uh, actually, now groceries are really expensive, so it's not all that hard. But you got to spend $400 at ShopRite, and then you get a free turkey. 
And so there's always a family in the congregation, and she knows my phone number. So the way that works is when she goes out at the cash register, uh, she buys her stuff. She pays her money for her stuff, but she actually puts in her identity as being my identity because she puts in my phone number. So the store actually sees her as checking out, but she actually pays for all her groceries. She pays with her money. She pays the money, but the money that she gets paid gets credits to my account. And so come Thanksgiving, I get my free turkey because she's bought enough groceries. That's the way that it works with God. Jesus lives a perfect life. He lives a sinless life. And he pays the ultimate price of being crucified on a cross. He takes the curse of sin on it. He takes our expense of evil and darkness and death. He takes that on himself. And in the meantime, he transfers to us his absolutely perfect relationship with the Father in heaven. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. That's the how of what it means to be saved. The why, we're dead. We're broken, we're breakers. The what, the what is we're far off from God. He rescues us. He delivers us. He steps into our darkness to bring rescue. How does that work? It works through God's riches given to us at the expense of Christ. And notice it's through faith. Faith is not merely assent. Faith is being bound to God and living in response to him. Faith, you might say, is adhesive. It binds and attaches the believer to the one who is believed. And so you are a participant. You are in Christ. You are a participant with him through faith in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Lastly, the why, the what, the how, and the when. Again, verses, two, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace... Notice what it says, you have been saved. That tense is actually perfect, which means this. The perfect tense means it's a definite action in the past, but the implications of that action continue in the present and on into the future. It's at a definitive point in time and past. And so through faith at one point, Jesus became your Savior, or if that hasn't happened yet, through faith, you need to embrace him as your rescuer, as the one who saves you. You need to get saved and rescued out of your darkness, out of the deeds that you've done. You need to be rescued. So there's a point in time when that happens. You become alive in Christ. You become his son. You become his daughter. But the implications of that continue. You have... It's not just you were saved once upon a time. You have been saved. You were saved, but the implications of that continue. The impact of that continues in your life. Being saved is both done and it's ongoing. Several times Paul mentions you have been saved. 
He also mentioned this idea of a little bit about what that looks like. He says in verses 4 and 5, but because of his great love for us, God made us alive with Christ. That's present. We're alive with Christ. Verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ. That's an ongoing implication of being saved. We've been raised with Christ. Verse 6 again, we're seated he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Again, that's an implication, a continuing impact of being saved. We're seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Verses 6 and 7 in total say this, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms. That's a present reality. We're presently seated with him in the heavenly realms in order that in the coming ages, this is future, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, just to close, I want to get really kind of concrete about this. Because when we talk about being seated with Christ in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, when we talk about being, being made alive with Christ, when God raises us up with Christ, that's fairly abstract language. It can seem to almost drip with sort of like celestial dust and be completely irrelevant for your modern day life. It sounds overly spiritualistic, sounds overly nebulous to be seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In fact, it sounds so heavenly, it's no earthly good. It's kind of how it sounds. So what does that look like? Because here's the deal. Unless that has real traction in your life at this very moment, you're not really living out the implications of what it means to be saved. I'll just give you kind of a personal illustration, and maybe it's helpful. Maybe it's, it's very minor, very earthy, uh, but it's literally something that I experienced. So probably about a week and a half ago, I went to Walmart, and most of my spiritual crises take place in parking lots and shopping centers. Um, and I needed something at Sporting Goods, and actually needed someone's help there. And so I went to the Sporting Goods section, and um, nobody was there. And one of my idols, honestly, it's not good, is efficiency. I love efficiency. I, I just, I adore it. Um, yeah, I, efficiency is awesome. And so, you know, I got stuff to do. And so, you know, it takes you a while to, like, find someone. And so, found an associate and said, hey, like, need something. At, and I'm, like, really super kind and all. Need somebody at Sporting Goods to give me some help. Okay, I'll look. And so, like, you know, three or four minutes pass and, like, nobody's there. Tap on another associate. Find another associate. Tap on that person's shoulder. Like, Wait another three or four minutes, like nobody's there. Finally, I do what every normal thinking person does. I like call Walmart itself. Like I'm standing in the store, Google the, hey, call Walmart. Hey, hit zero for the store operator. Said, hey, like I'm at Sporting Goods, kind of need some help. And, you know, 30 seconds later, yeah, there's associates needed at Sporting Goods. So, and I'm kind of waiting there. And by this time, it's like 15 minutes. Like I'm not happy. Like I'm just not. And so a guy comes, and like, honestly, this is, this is, I'm, I'm serious about this. And in my mind is literally what we're talking about. I'm think, I mean, obviously the Holy Spirit did that. Where am I seated? In a Walmart aisle. 
Am I seated in Christ or am I seated in Nathan Tucky? If I'm seated in Nathan Tucky, I'm super agitated. I'm super cynical. I'm super negative to anybody who's going to help me out. If I am in Nathan Tucky in that moment in the Walmart shopping aisle, it's not a pretty scene. Or in that moment, am I going to be seated in Christ? Christ is sufficient. Christ is not in a rush. Am I seated in the temporariness and the momentness of my circumstances? Or am I seated in the heavenly realities? In this moment, it doesn't matter what happens to me. I am God's son. I am loved by the Father in heaven. Yes, efficiency is an awesome thing. But it's not the thing. Like the thing at this very moment, no matter what happens to me, I belong to God and I'm seated with him. And I, literally, friends, I'm not kidding you, that these thoughts literally go through my head. And the guy walks up and he has some tattoos in his arms. And i like, what's your favorite tattoo in your arm? I said, I'm from Europe. My dad was here when 9-11 happened and t- told me, this tattoo. He said, oh, I, s- I see you have a, like a God is dead tattoo on your other arm. You think he's dead? The guy says, I hope not. I said, yeah, I don't think he's dead. I think he loves you. It wasn't this big gospel presentation, but I'm just telling you, friends, if I'm not seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus at that moment, if if that theological truth is not good for that moment, it's not good for any moment. If it's irrelevant when it matters, it's completely irrelevant. And so I don't know what relevance it has for you. Maybe it's an argument with the spouse. And if you're in yourself, you've got to be right. You've got to prove it. You've got to make your point. You've got to be seen that the other person has to recognize that you, that's being seated in yourself. But maybe when you're having the marital fight, you're seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. And it's okay if you're not right. It's okay if the other person doesn't recognize that you're right. It's okay if you don't get your way. Or maybe maybe you actually do need the courage to, to fully speak truth and to be seated in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus is to say, like, you know what? I feel God's spirit pushing me to actually say calmly, sincerely, the full truth of what I'm happened, what's, what I feel is happening in this moment. I usually just cave out of fear of man. I usually just cave out of fear of pressure. I usually just cave for the sake of making artificial peace. But I'm not going to stand up and protect my rights and stomp my feet. But I'm going to speak. I'm going to speak truth. I'm going to speak at the hallway. I'm going to speak with humility and sadness and truthfulness. And maybe that's what it looks like for you to be in Christ, in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. I don't know what it is, friends. But all I'm saying is this. It's an ongoing rippling impact of what it means to be saved. Yes, and it was an event in the past. 
but it's got this ongoing rippling effect. It's lived out daily in your life. You are seated with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And it's not just sprinkled dust, heavenly dust. It happens in family rooms, dining rooms, parking lots, church gathering areas, shopping center aisles. If it's not relevant there, it's not relevant anywhere. So maybe the first thing is you actually maybe need to get saved, to be rescued. See, it's, it's not my efforts, but it's Christ's riches. It's God's riches at Christ's expense. Or maybe your commitment is to continue to live out the ongoing implications of what it means to be saved. Our team is going to come out, and we're going to sing this last song, In Christ Alone, because our hope is not in ourselves. Our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in the one who rescues us from the condition of darkness. So let's stand together, and uh, we're going to sing and sing this out as a statement that you belong to Christ. It's not through your efforts. It's through the efforts of Jesus. It's, it's God's riches at Christ's expense. Let's sing this together. Just so- 
God, thank you for the richness of your grace to us. We are dead. We're broken under the dominion of darkness. We're breakers. Our deeds violate your goodness. Thank you for the grace of Jesus. Thank you for him, his record being put to our account and our record being put to his account. May the rippling implications of that be lived out in our daily lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray, and everyone who agreed said, amen, amen. Here, prayer, te prayer team is down here to the right. God bless, have a wonderful day.